Welcome to The Power of Post Paralysis, The Proximity of Placement. In this segment, join us as we discuss with leaders the power of failed success turned into success of failure. Invention, intuition, and innovation of these leaders and their business acumen and how they've leveraged limiting beliefs to overcome and become remarkable mindsets for success we know them for today. How they do it, what was defining, what we can learn in order to grow ourselves in personal and professional ventures, and the role that proximity and placement has played in their growth. Listen in. right now um, it's raining however just get a little glimpse of where we're at I believe General Lee was the general at the time of this reservation army reservation so the street is Lee Street and it's right by MARTA, the main transportation hubs here in Atlanta. Um, so anyhow, I just, I, I had to, I couldn't dare <laughs> think not to be here while I'm here. Tyler Perry's story is so significant and it's similar to my own and many people who come to know um, what it is to be homeless with a dream traveling around kind of in this space of unawareness but aware internally of that rock in you that's grounding you and pulling you. Um, when you have a dream, when you have a vision, when you have a goal, when you want to get something done in spite of what it looks like, in spite of you know what people tell you, in spite of the naysayers, in spite of the thousand no's you've gotten, in spite of you know your family background, in spite of what neighborhood you grew up in, in spite of what people told you that you couldn't do, that you wasn't worthy of, in spite of all those things, in spite of everything we know Tyler Perry, because in spite of what people told him, even sometimes he may have told himself when he was living in doubt and fear, he overcame those things and to become one of the wealthiest conscious brothers that we know. For all those young people, it's less about where you begin than it is about where you're headed, where you're going. Remember that. Thoughts do become things. It's 
see what's here. Hmm. So now what Tyler Perry does is he employs many homeless people, giving them jobs, giving them opportunities, teaching them new skills, new trades, allowing them to be. Because homelessness is a thing, you know, it's, um, it can make you bitter. It can make you emotionless. It can make you numb, sad, angry, frustrated. Every human emotion that you can possibly think about happens with homelessness. You figure out unique ways about where to sleep, how to sleep, where you're going to get your next meal from. The time is important. You lose track of time. You lose things. You lose paperwork. You lose, you lose your ID. You lose so many different things and sometimes you find yourself sitting in spaces or sitting in places like in this wayward way just kind of there kind of afloat just there standing or sitting or lying or trying to make some sense of the world all around you or maybe nothing at all maybe just in numbness maybe in quietness maybe in mindfulness just there and just your feet get tired. You just get tired of walking around corners, around circles, around blocks. You get tired. Your feet wear out. And you just plump a seat wherever you may be. And you just sit there. And you just stare. And often you fall asleep. And wake back up. And you're still there. Homelessness is a, is a thing. It is a thing of the mind. <clears throat> it is a thing in our reality, in our world. It is a true thing that so many face. So many black, so many brown, so many young, so many gay, so many poor, so many mental health individuals. It is a thing that many of us been faced with, but on the other side, when you find balance, when you get clear, when you become one again, overcoming, well, that's, that's another thing in itself. So I'm on this journey Right, and it's just taking me all around this country and my mind all around the world. Here at 37. Wondering what it would be. To be or not to be, that is the question. There we go. Out. Until next time, remember thoughts do become things. If it is to be or not to be, that is entirely up to you. Until next time.
Be well. Today I'll be reading from Georgia's 2018 candidate and Democratic gubernatorial nod candidate of Georgia, an excerpt nod, and was just one point from becoming its first African-American female governor, Stacey Abrams, in her book, Our Time is Now, Power, Purpose, and the Fight for a Fair America. We will stay and stand up for what belongs to us as American citizens because they can't say that we have not had patience. Fannie Lou Hamer. The introduction. Who is stealing America's future? In January 2019, my grandparents passed away. Walter Abrams, known as Billy to family and friends, was a formidable woman. She gave birth to six children in a span of four years, two daughters and then two sets of twin boys, born in 1946, 1948, 1949, and 1950. She and my grandfather, Walter Abrams, or Jim, raised five of their kids into adulthood in the crippling poverty of Mississippi and segregation losing my father's twin brother in his infancy. Neither of my grandparents had unexpressed opinions and they brought their children up to also hold strong convictions. Both my grandparents were cooked at the local state university serving students at a school their own children could not attend. My grandfather, a slender bat tan of a man, served in World War II as a Navy cook and fought as a boxer during his tour. When he got drafted into the Korean War, he did his duty again, knowing that the entire time he was returning to the segregation and racial South, the Deep South. Bitterness fought with practicality as he returned twice to a country that denied him basic civil rights. In 2021, in the weeks before he passed, I left the special legislative session where we were drawing new political districts I shared my frustration about the ways black and brown voters were being stripped of power of men of colorful language. He basically warned me not to let the bastards get me down. Just before the 2018 election, I traveled to my parents' home in Hattiesburg, Mississippi to the tour from the campaign trail was unusual, but both a fundraising opportunity and a deep call to my family brought me there. One evening, I went to the master bedroom my parents had seated to my grandmother when she could no longer live alone. She sat in her favorite recliner watching the news on MSNBC, cell phone on her lap. I perched on the edge of her bed. Grandma turned down the volume and she asked about my election. But then national attention had been fixed on the voter suppression allegation against Brian Kemp and on the night it was a tight numbers in our contest. I explained the latest development to her and she vented about the words I had carried from Georgia. When I finished, she patted my hand and then she told me about the first time she'd ever voted. Like my grandfather, she had been incensed in the strictest of Jim Crow since childhood. Smart and quick, 
She had seen lesser minds advance because of racial discrimination, but she understood how the systems worked. And when her children became agitators in the civil rights movement, she wearily supported their activism. But she and my grandfather had been quitter in the movement because they understood the consequences if they got caught. Putting food on the table and keeping their homes kept, both of them primarily on the sidelines, but grandma had faced the menacing growls of the massive dogs used to control protesting crowds, and she had violently sprayed by the water hoses used to remind blacks of their place. She'd gather up the bail money to free her teenage son from jail when he got arrested registering voters. At one point, the local police were calling her regularly to interrogate her about the protest actions of her children. By the time the Voting Rights Act passed in 1965, she understood its significance, but she also knew not to expect immediate change, and she was right. Across much of the South, the implementation came very slowly, thus her real first opportunity to vote didn't arrive until 1968. That night, I listened to her talk and suddenly her voice grew tremulous. I worried that I had worn her out, but I quickly realized that the soft trembling came not from exhaustion, but from shame. Quietly, she recounted the day of the election, how granddaddy, her brother LP, and others got ready to go and cast their first ballot in Mississippi. My dad would tell you this. By two years, too young to vote, but she had the opportunity, yet she told me she refused to leave her bedroom where she sat paralyzed by fear. The laws had changed, but they had changed before. There was the promise of an emancipation that still left her great-great-grandparents enslaved and the school desegregation that took nearly a decade to arrive. But the right to vote carried the most significant victory, and she did not believe this promise was real. She explained how my grandfather called for them to meet them at the front door, but she didn't budge. Finally, he stormed down the hall and into the shadowed room. Impatiently, he demanded to know what was taking her so long. When history awaited their arrival, Grandma squeezed my hand as she remembered the explanation she gave to her husband. I'm afraid, Jim. I'm afraid of the dogs and the police. I don't want to vote. She covered my hand and her eyes held mine. Stacy, your grandfather got so angry. This has been an excerpt from Stacey Abrams. Our time is now. Power, purpose, and the fight for a fair America. Her latest book, Lead from the Outside, How to Build Your Future, is streaming everywhere. I just thought to share. Until next time, be well. The question arises, what do these well-off blacks get from less advantaged blacks? 
This question has been raised by some upwardly mobile blacks who feel no obligation beyond self-interest and charity to aid those less well-off. For example, it is often thought that there is a general duty of charity owed to those who, through no fault of their own, are less fortunate than we are. Yet blacks are not permitted to see their concern for other blacks as charity. One does not give charity to family members. Since there is no immediate payback for helping the disadvantaged, it is generally thought that middle-class blacks are repaying other blacks who worked to make their middle-class existence possible. It is an obligation of reciprocity. Philosopher Bernard R. Boxall agrees and thinks that such an obligation means that each person who receives a benefit from the contributions of others has a duty to contribute to it as well. It is wrong and a derelection of duty to be a parasite. Everyone has a duty to pull his own weight. What does it mean for each person to pull his own weight? It at least means that individuals should not be a burden to the race of society. But in the black community, the notion of reciprocity often means working to pay back those who made one's present condition or situation possible. For example, black college students are told that they owe a debt to those blacks who struggled for the right of blacks to attend predominantly white universities. These students are obligated to keep up the struggle to ensure that other blacks will have the same opportunity. It would seem that if one were to do well in college and press for fair treatment of other blacks, one would have repaid one's debt to those blacks who struggled before one. This, however, turns out not to be the case. One is constantly reminded, like members of some families, not to forget that one's brothers and sisters have not been able to make it. It does not matter what one's past contributions have been to the family. One other reason for supporting the race as family model has to be given. Those who push the racial uplift notion claim that if less fortunate blacks are not respected and treated with dignity, the social situation of more affluent blacks is always in danger. Respect for one black depends on the entire groups being respected. Helping less fortunate blacks has the effect of securing the social position of more fortunate blacks. This may seem like an appeal to self-interest. However, black leaders have resisted the appeal to self-interest. Like the Bois that realize that if allowed to act in what they perceive to be their own best interest, many blacks might not choose to help less advantaged blacks. Middle-class blacks get the good feeling of helping family members. Even if racism will not be eliminated, middle-class blacks have been concerned with the overall behavior of poor blacks. Whites, it is thought, do not generally make distinctions between the behavior of poor blacks and that of middle-class blacks. So middle-class blacks still need to be concerned with the social behavior of poor blacks. One way middle-class blacks can influence this negative behavior is to live with them and show them how to be. When assessing the situation. So, um, welcome to the now time.
my mind began to wonder about people placement in proximity. You know, as we grow and develop in life, from childhood to adolescence to uh, young adulthood to adulthood to maturity to um, putting dentures in our mouths. Each phase we grow and we develop and we learn more about ourselves and we learn more about the world around us. Um, the idea is really to help us to learn more about ourselves through other people's experiences interconnected with our own interpersonal understanding of our own experience. Because as human beings, our job is con- to connect with one another. And that's on a, 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 a physical level, on an on, on, on ontological or spiritual level. Um, that's one of those interpersonal concepts that come about of how you view yourself, how you view people, um, and your values come from your views and your visions come from your values, views, values, and vision. It is a, the, in the process of life in which we grow and develop and we become more learned beings, we become more learned individuals, we become more focused about who we are um, and what we want to do if we are so lucky to focus and hone in on it. Those who hone in on their skills, talents, and abilities that they have cultivated through time and experience to be where they are and who they are at the time they are, and then to assess that and recognize, you know, what propels them, what stops them, what, you know, intimidates them, what provokes them, what catapults them, you know, you know, everything that connects to our emotions. You know, Albert Einstein came up with the theorem or the theory E equals MC squared, which is pretty much the relativity of everything, which is connectivity to everything. One atom, one beam, one source is actually connected to every and all parts and components of our physical world. So that's one part. And then we talk about the spiritual part. That spiritual component or the ontological component is that really interpersonal connection with ourselves and how we connect with the world outside of ourselves. So there is a, there is a direct and there is an indirect um, relationship of self and self looking at other selves and self being a part of other selves, you know. Um, being the observed and the observed all at the same time. That's what life's really about. When you recognize that you're the observed and the observer all at the same time, you then are growing and developing nuggets to move on to the next phase of our lives. There are phases in lives that we learn. It's not necessarily a time, but there is a connection between time, experience, and understanding that helps us get from one to tertiary level of life. You know, life is one building block upon the next until the next level of life. There is a process in growing. And so the more we recognize who we are, the more we recognize our experiences, the more we recognize um, you know, how we see ourselves in the world and how we see ourselves a part of the world, the more we become who we essentially 
are. And those enough who are brave enough to extend not only themselves the respect to actually be consider the awareness and accept the awareness of where you are um, compared to where you have been or where you are headed. You have assessed where you are and you have valued where you are to some capacity when you are not only accepting where you are, but you actually take the point to move. You actually take the conscious choice or by force. Either way, you move because force doesn't mean you have to move. People instantly think when you say force, you have to move. Force doesn't necessarily mean you have to move. There means there are some other variables that must be considered that are opposing to your objection of getting to where you are, to where you want to be. When you actually, by choice and or by force, decide to move, decide to go, you actually are valuing yourself through your views based off of your experiences in life. Now, how you see yourself, that you are worthy even through the pain, the struggle, the strife, the shifts, the bends, the rifts, a life to actually move, even if it's by a force moving, but you decide to move, rather die. Making that conscious cho choice to move to what connects you to more about who you are. You know, 97% of who we are as homo sapiens, our genetic makeup is the same. That's all ethnic groups. 97% of all of our ethnic schools, no matter how you mix them, are genetically the same. It is 3% that separates one ethnic group from another. That 3% is our phenotypical expression of our genes. That 3% is what we see with our eyes, this physical, what we see in our eyes. But that 3%, ladies and gentlemen, is the 3% that we're willing to stretch to and, and for to be stretched to and for to be. We're willing to stretch to and for to be that 3% to connect outside of what we can't find alone. Remember, our number one job as sapiens is to connect, is to breathe, is to connect. And a, a breath is a connection. A breath is a connection from the possibility of life and death because we know life and death is in the power of the tongue. Life and death in one breath. You could be here and in the next, one breath. So understanding the notion of time and the dimension of time, understanding the delicacy of time, we are willing to go there. And when you recognize, if you go with who you are, if you consider that awareness, if you go with who you are, you will connect through the atoms of your body that are actually gravitationally pulling you into where you are destined to be. When you do that, you're going to run into all sorts of people that that 3% does not account for only. It's going to be the ontological consideration to think, consider about. For some people, for other people, then no. But for other people, you might see some strange things.
what is considered strange to many other people. But is it your strange, the strange that you're willing to be called crazy of? You're willing to get up at 2 o'clock in the morning or lay down at 4 o'clock in the afternoon because you're willing to be called crazy because you're willing to stretch to and for to be isn't strange quite at all to you. It's quite interesting. In fact, I think I should ask a question here. You're going to run into all kinds of folk. And if you're lucky, you're going to then look yourself in the mirror and question who you are even again. Damn it. This is not then again it is. And you're going to know you'll need water and food at your bedside. Because without water and food, you die. You simply die. But no. Um, yeah, you're going to run into some interesting people. I believe I ran into several sociopaths. And some psychopaths and a combination of the two. Which is irrationality. It's it's the lack of thirst for decency. So that puts you on watch at least hey, and annoyed at other times as well. Now who's asking the questions here? I thought about it. I denounce the very notion of its credence about my life. I call the 1-800 number customer service line. And for what? There was only an automated voice. I was peed apostrophe deed. O-F-F exclamation point. But there are a lot of strange things that may be considered strange to other people, including looking in the mirror. Jackson wrote a song about, I'm the man in the mirror. Looking at him. I'm looking at the man in the mirror. I'm asking him to change his ways And no message could have been any clearer 